Hello, I'm Matthew Curtis, and welcome to this special edition of the Pellicle Podcast. Today's episode was recorded back in February at Cloudwater's Friends and Family and Beer Festival. It's hard to believe that such a brilliant event actually happened in 2020, but we're so glad it did, and we'll remember that weekend fondly for a long time to come. Huge thanks again to Paul, Doreen and Connor at Cloudwater for inviting Johnny and I up to host these talks at the festival. In this episode, Johnny Hamilton chats with Chris Johnson from Greenbench in Florida, Andrew Schwartz from Modern Times in San Diego, California, and Felix Nash of the Fine Cider Company here in the UK. This conversation is about what happens when the production of beer, wine and cider are brought together, and what potential experiences this offers the curious drinker. This is a fascinating insight into the crossover of beer, wine and cider, and I hope you find this discussion as compelling as I did when I got to sit in the audience and listen in. Huge thanks again to our Patreon subscribers for making this podcast possible, including Cloudwater, who are one of our pro-tier subscribers. If you're able to support Pellicle with a monthly donation, please head to patreon.com forward slash mag. And now, it's on with the show. So welcome to this panel, uh, a last minute addition to the panel. We've got Andrew here. Uh, this panel was originally meant to be about hybrids, both uh, beer wine and beer cider. But I think just based on the panel that we've got, we're probably going to focus a little bit more on the beer cider thing, just because we've got people who have a lot of experience in that. We'll kind of touch on beer wine hybrids too. But uh, I'm Johnny. Uh, I'm a co-founder of a magazine called Pellicle with Matthew here. And our guest today, we've got Felix Nash. Uh, Felix uh, runs the Fine Cider Company, which is a cider merchant uh, based in London. And he basically works with uh, producers, including Lil Pomona, Oliver's, who he's representing today, uh, Ross and Y, a bunch of others, and gets them onto uh, lists in amazing restaurants, places like Long Clume, The Marksman, uh, many, many, many great restaurants. Uh, he also put out a book last year on Fine Cider, which is fantastic, and he's basically uh, an advocate and... Uh, champion of cider in the UK. Uh, we've got Chris here uh, from, from Green Bench Brewing in St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, who make a range of paleos and laggers and mixed firm and everything. But in 2015, they set up uh, Green Bench Cider and Mead. Mead and Cider. Mead and cider. Don't, don't Very important. <laughs> and so we're making a bunch of, uh, of, of ciders and meads and mix, uh, with mixed fermentation and some fooder stuff. And then we've got Andrew here from Modern Times Brewery in uh, San Diego, technically, but you kind of, you, you, you go, you work all around. LA, Portland. LA, Portland. Yeah. yeah. And Andrew... Yeah, everything is made, yeah. Andrew's role is the... What's your role? It's got, you've got head a brewer. Head brewer. You have employee a... Employee owner. Employee owner. Head brewer. Uh, but Modern Times last year... Just like me. Modern Times last year also started their cider program, yeah. so... Uh, a good last-minute addition. So we're going to talk about uh, why we make these hybrids, uh, what we think they bring to the table, if they're a uh, good kind of gateway for people who like uh, beer but maybe don't like cider, or maybe who, do, who like wine but don't like beer, and what we think they bring to the table, and also what constitutes as a hybrid. Uh, so I wanted to start off by talking to you two as brewers and uh, wanted to find out how you got into 
cider and how you got into these hybrids and what you think uh, for you they bring to the table. Is it something that interests uh, you as brewers or is it something you think is a good gateway? So I'll start with Andrew. I'll start with me. Um, yeah, so we got into, I'm trying to think of when we did our first one. I think it was three years ago that we did our first cider beer hybrid and it really came from you know, just the constant curiosity of like different fermented products. Like we're all curious in all di different things and you start to get into cider. And, um, in most places in the country, in the U S uh, they don't have good cider. It's, it's like dessert, apple cider, fermented back sweetened, like doesn't barely taste like the apple or anything. Um, but when we spent more time in Oregon, we were noticing like some, some really nice cider apples there, some heirloom varieties from some unique producers. And we did a collaboration with, um, uh, it was first with um, Wandering Angus, who had a Wixen cider. So we got some Wixen juice from them and did this like co-fermentation with the Saison. And um, it had this great acidity and minerality that we never had before. And um, it, you know, it was really a curiosity for us. Um, and, and from that, it grew until the point where we, could, we found this loophole in California law so we could make 100% cider. Um, but before that, it was just like, it was when can we use apples in the... Um, in the process to kind of make, you know, add minerality or flavor or, or like um, something a little different um, to, to a Saison generally. Um, and uh, yeah, so what was I gonna say about the cider? That uh, <laughs> the cider, um, <laughs> the ping pong ball and the, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the Yahtzee. Um, so uh, the cider that we were excited about was like, was first just that, that, that kind of like, um, how does it add something to sour beer generally? And then we started to get into it, um, heirloom varieties, unique varieties, and making cider 100%. And we still haven't dug into like a cider for everyone necessarily, um, something that's like a little more approachable. Our stuff generally tends to be like very dry and funky and fermented with our house cultures. Um, but it's, it's just been kind of a, a passion project, like a curiosity project. Uh, so I originally got into cider myself probably about 10, 11 years ago, uh, and it was I was working, so I had just left Cigar City. I was working at Cigar City Brewing. Uh, I was home brewing as well, but I, I, was work, I worked there for like a year, and then I left to open a brewery for a homebrew shop called Southern Brewing and Winemaking in Tampa. And um, while I was working there, we ended up getting, we moved locations, got a license to be able to sell some like other bottles and stuff, and I would get bottles in, and myself and a friend of mine, Brian Wing, who used to work at the place as well. And he was a brewer at Tambay Brewing Company uh, in town, in Ybor City. Um, we got, the only cider we could really get that we thought was somewhat interesting was DuPont cider. And that shit blew my mind. I mean, it was just like, actually at the time, and you gotta think back then, like Tampa, St. Pete, 10 years ago, no Brett anything anywhere. Like you couldn't find, there was Jolly Pumpkin, uh, I guess, I don't know if you, you guys get Jolly Pumpkin here. All right, cool, yeah. Uh, so like Jolly Pumpkin wasn't even in Florida. Like you couldn't get, there was no 100% Britannomyces, there was no natural fermentation, there was no mixed culture, nothing like that 10 years ago. And so when I was trying to describe Britannomyces fermentations, other than making them at home as a home brewer, at the time I was doing that, but when I wanted to describe it to a customer, I had to go be like, you wanna know what bread is, you need to drink the cider. And I would pop it open, and it was this insane barnyard, dry, effervescent. It was beautiful, like leather, incredible characteristics. And so that's really what got me into cider was, was that, that specific cider. And so Brian and I used to start making cider together. Um, and then you fast forward, 2013, uh, we opened Green Bench. And then 2014. 
and right away we had me we had talked to Brian about hey we want to bring you on and we want to start a meat insider program and I ain't gonna do that shit so like you can definitely do that and he was he's incredible and so uh, we brought him on like actually and a few months ago we actually made him uh, one of our co owners so he's he, he's now completely solidified in the team um, so he started the meat insider program at Green Bench and we I think originally. Um, well, even back then, the only ciders that you could get in Florida, by that point, there were some that would come in. You can get them at grocery stores, uh, like Crispin, like e- stuff that was somewhat you could find easily. Angry Orchard, you eventually could find. Um, but anything that was made in Florida was all culinary apples, and it was all like, it was like, check out this like blueberry pie cider. And it was all sweet and sticky kind of stuff, and which is what Florida's all about anyway, I guess. Um, and now we make those. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, we, we started trying to make drier stuff. So we were, we were fermenting ciders, uh, trying to find juice. We ended up like going to CiderCon a few years in a row, trying to find apple purveyors because there's, surprise, surprise, there's no apples in Florida. Uh, so we ended up finding a grower. His name is Jake of Embark Cider. I think he's like fourth, fifth generation cider grower in upstate New York in like Hudson Valley area. And... Um, They've got dozens of different varieties of ciders that they grow. They're constantly grafting new ones and planting trees if you need them. Um, and they're using a bunch of like heirloom, just like old cider apples. So we're trying to find like good juice. And we got this deal where we go up there once or twice a year and we taste apples and we decide, you know, what blends we want. And then they, they press the juice at the quantities we want. They ship them down, then we ferment. So we've done stuff like uh, where the first like hybrid we kind of did was a collaboration with Bee Nectar actually. So we pressed some juice in Michigan, sent it down and we brewed, it was the second beer in a series of beers we do called the Sauvage series, which is basically uh, my concept there was to make a five, like roughly five and a half percent, hundred percent Britannomyces fermented farmhouse ale with the, where 30% of the fermentable sugars come from some other ingredient that's then paired with a single hop. And the concept is to basically try to make a beer where that's just completely balanced with those variables so that you don't know where the ingredient ends, the hop begins, and or the bread takes over or whatever. It's just you drink it, you're like, shit, that's good. And then you start to unpack it and you're trying to figure out how it's how it works, right? A, a compelling is really what I was looking for, like a compelling saison or farmhouse sale. And the first one we did was Sauvage Blanc with Chardonnay Great Must. And then the second one we did was um, uh, Sauvage Palm, which was with the apples, and we did that with Amarillo. And the third one we did was Sauvage Miel um, with honey. It was orange blossom honey and mandarin and Bavaria hops. And they were fun beers. We started doing cider stuff. We fermented it in our fooders with our cultures of you know wild yeast, Saccharomyces, and Britannomyces co-ferments. Uh, and then we've recently gotten into specifically a lot of like single varietal ciders, which I'm sure we could probably unpack here in a minute. But uh, yeah, that's kind of what we do. Um, just briefly, can you tell people what we're drinking? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So um, what we're drinking now is a cider called Pioneer Wixen. So I guess I'll just go ahead and say it. So we... We started getting these apples from upstate New York, and we're trying to think. We, we just went through somewhat of a big expansion for us, where two years ago we decided to go through this expansion where we tripled overall production on the brewery side, um, which is still not a ton of beer. I mean, we, it's like 12,000 barrels max is what we got, which is now what we're producing. But on the cider side, it increased the cider mead program by tenfold, which was 
four wine tanks for mead, two conical 15 barrel tanks, and a 15 barrel bright tank. Um, one of the nice things is that we have an operating brewery, so we can use all the equipment otherwise. So like we can centrifuge and shit. So like I'm excited. We're doing this program this year. We're trying to we're doing keeved cider, and we're actually using the centrifuge to create this like keeving process where it's essentially you're starving yeast by like transferring off of it over and over again. This racking process. It's tight. We'll talk later. Then. But with that said, we were trying to figure out, like, well, now we got this good cider juice coming. We have the facility. How, what, like, what are the characteristics of cider that we want to present? Because, like I mentioned, in St. Pete, nobody knows any of this shit. They're, they're drinking pies, basically. And so, we're, so there's you know, really three characteristics you're looking for in cider apples, right? You're obviously looking for sugar, but you're looking for acid, and you're looking for tannin. And it's the combination of those and fermentation that then create the profile that we're looking for. And we prefer dry shit because everything on the beer side and the, and the sort of meat and cider side. And so ultimately, we've decided we're going to just make – we're going to start with a bunch of single varietal ciders, and we're just going to call them what the apples are. The idea there being for the first year, let's just make these, or even two years, so that at all times we try to keep like a somewhat neutral – sort of uh, cider where we have where not the acid or the tannin is necessarily in charge like one is not necessarily beating out the other one but we do want one whose acid profile is higher and we do want one whose tannins profile higher and we're just going to call it whatever that apple is the idea is that if we do that for a year two years while we're doing a bunch of other fun stuff too the consumer and us will learn as well but the consumer is going to learn eventually to associate well i like newtown pippin but I really liked Pioneer Wixen more. It's like, all right, cool. Well, that, that's the conversation we're going to have. Because Pioneer Wixen, those are crab apples. They're like little tiny apples. When you press them, the juice looks like water almost. And they're high in acid, low in tannin, really high in sugar. So you like acid-forward apples. So from now on, you'll know that Pioneer and Wixen, which are two different, that's technically a single varietal, that's two different apples. But that's, those specific ones are going to uh, give you somewhat of an acid-forward thing. Whereas Newtown Pimpin is going to give you a little more tannin, Soft, it's definitely some good acidity, but not as much maybe as this, as far as the profile. And so when we start doing blends where we say it's 20% this, 70% this, whatever, and we start playing around with blending a lot of these apple juices, hopefully our consumer has some sort of context of what that flavor is. And so Pioneer Wixen, like I said, is two different apples. Wixen uh, is 75% of the blend. Pioneer is 25% of the blend. We ferment them all dry and neutral, cold, took about three, four months of fermentation, um, and then, and we try to keep the fermentation consistent around all of them because that's a variable we don't want to mess with. We want them to know what the juice tastes like, right? What the cider tastes like. So they're all fermented the same. They're all fermented with just, I mean, this, it's generally like wine yeast for these ones. So those aren't naturally fermented. Um, and then, yeah, that's how those ones are. We do other stuff too, but yeah, cool. Thank you very much. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit more generally about what hybrids are and uh, something that we d just talked about before this and that Chris pointed out about using centrifuges in production of cider is really interesting that Felix brought up that it's not just the nature of a hybrid being X amount of juice from this uh, fruit and X amount uh, sugars from wort. It can be a hybrid in that taking ideas from uh, other uh, processes, so using something in the brewing world like centrifuges to something that probably isn't used very much in natural small cider production. And I want to know what your opinions of what constitutes a hybrid, like, for example, aging something, a beer in a wine barrel, probably not a hybrid, and definitely 50-50 a hybrid. But 
what do you think counts as a hybrid and from the other end of this, the spectrum from being a cider person, what do you think that these hybrids uh, lend to the, to the beer industry? Because you've been at many beer festivals representing Oliver's and you kind of, you must see what the appeal is with cider and people like people coming to you interested. And do you think these hybrids are a good gateway for people? Sorry, so first thing I should apologize for, uh, probably lots of things, but we'll begin with this. Is, uh, it's been the second day of this, uh, and in the afternoon I've spent the last two days chewing off and shouting as much stuff at people as I can about cider, so and my voice is a bit croaky, apologies. But um, uh, I suppose one thing that I can really kind of lend to it, and I think about as you're saying that as well, on the merchant side I encounter a lot of ciders from a lot of different makers. Uh, I don't know it from the maker's perspective in terms of the thought and choice process, but it is really, really fascinating, this question that's getting more overlapped and into kind of wrapped, I guess, what the traditional boundaries were, which were so definitive. You know, uh, one other one that uh, is sort of taking the two different directions of, uh, you know, wine and beer and cider and uh, beer that I can kind of connect the dots with as well as the cider and wine side. And I think that's sort of... Um, is, is a part, I think, of the underlying mentality with hybrids is these things were very specific. If you're talking cider, uh, fundamentally you're fermenting fruit sugars from fruit juice. Just so happens that's from apples. Whereas if you're making a wine, that's from grapes. But actually a lot of the... You know, down at the smaller scale, the things you're working with is actually very interchangeable. I think that kind of hybridization is a bit of a leveling of a playing field in that sense, in a really fascinating way. I think it's freeing makers up to do lots of really cool and interesting things. Um, I know from a cider perspective, I mean, Tom Oliver is one of the best examples in terms of the beer world and the sort of reputation he's been able to foster. Obviously, a lot of the kind of higher profile uh, collaborations, the kind of four friends side of things, the Mills Brewing side. I know that is very much underpinned by his just curiosity and fascination, the ability to learn from these things. So that, going back to the sort of hybrid way of thinking, uh, I used the example, I think, before of a maker we work with, Find and Foster, who's been doing some really cool experimentation with reintroducing pomace back to the juice in a sort of kind of like cider version of on skins, you know. Um, and, I mean, the brewing side and the centrifuge side is another fascinating example. I think you, in some ways, possibly, uh, I mean, setting maybe things like Keeving aside, have more of a precursor in brewing to have tools to work with, if you will. You're inherently doing a multi-stage process. Cider, um, and yeah, Tom's great, he's a genius, but at the end of the day, just juice, let it ferment. I mean, that is how you make the best, best stuff. The billions of wild yeasts that'll kick in, the everything that they'll do. Uh, I mean, he's very, very humble about it, but that's the way he describes it as well. So um, I do think, and being here is perhaps testament to it as well, that uh, bridging that kind of gap not only can create really fascinating things but really does allow and this is what i love with it uh lots of you guys to realize how good cider is i know you like beer but come on <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh yeah it's the hybrid side is uh i mean i it's interesting also the thought then is it like self-defeating what do you end up with beyond it if it's a change from the very 
industrialized categorization of what things are. Maybe you could look at it in a similar sense with styles within beer shifting across the last few decades. I don't know. Um, it's fundamentally. How would we more judge than, them then? Sorry? How would we judge them then? <laughs> no, I'm just. I, that, you're right, though. It, it's a blended. I, I think that's really interesting. Um, what you're saying about like the thought process and, and processes there, and sorry to interject, but it's like it's just that it's running um, out of energy. So it's good. it's it's, uh, it's good because uh, we we've taken a, that's where our most of our hybridization happens is in the processes. So we're like maybe we're working with cider, but we're taking winemaker process or beer maker process and or cider maker process and 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 using that either in beer or or wine grape uh, or grape beer hybrids or cider or cider hybrids but definitely something we've done with like um skin contact you know what does that mean for us and, and doing that um in in beers specifically we've had some awesome beers that are like skin contact with grapes we haven't had the chance to get pumice from cider yet but we really want to because pumice in grapes is like even better than working with juice in grapes sometimes and um and we have uh, we, so we've taken a lot of those processes and made those the hybrids of, of like basically the way we think about these products. You know, instead of thinking of them as just like blending these two together, um, it's more like you know, can we can we share a process that comes from a different place of thinking about it? Because really, winemakers and cider makers have a completely different way of thinking about things than brewers, and I don't know where that comes from exactly, um, but it's it's just like we brewers control things. To some extent, a lot more, you know. And when you talk to a lot of winemakers, they're they're more about um, letting the the juice, you know, the 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 grapes speak for themselves. And um, that's been something that we've been trying to do in in a weird hybrid way, I think, with with some of our beers. I think kind of as well that when you, the first thing you're saying, the the sort of why the hell not? It seems strange when you look at it from that angle. I mean, it's a wonderful testament, of course, to the complexity of alcohol, the different manners of making, and you have to as a maker, kind of choose and work out the approach that you like to work with and stand by. I always find it baffling with cider, the number of choices you have. You don't even know, if you take the wild yeast population, for example, Tom always does the lovely thing in talks where he holds up his fist and is like, there's like a billion yeast in my fist, you know? Um, supposedly for a wild ferment, you're talking about 95% of the yeast coming just ambiently, but two or so percent from skins, three from within the... and I mean, within like a cubic centimeter of cider apple, you have between 10 and 100,000 wild yeasts is meant to be the sort of aggregate kind of population. And you can't... and Like, not that you would, but you say, if you take the really controlled kind of version, you, you can't even actually really test that in real time and know what it is. You could test your yeast at a certain point and then at a different point and sort of know what's going on. You get the rules of, you know, like the apiculates early on and everything else. But... It is sort of so complex that then, yes, going back to that thing of taking influence from people who've gone down a different road and gone really far down it and come up with some really cool stuff actually seems kind of strangely, uh, strangely logical. Yeah, I mean, yeah. sometimes what things we do are from, is from our ignorance. Mm. You know, we're like, oh, this is what winemakers do. And then later you find out, you're like, oh, they don't do anything like that. That's, uh, you totally misread that. Um, but it made a really cool product, you know, and it's like, it's something like that. So it's, it's uh, it can be where you kind of interpret it in a different way. Um, I think that the 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 co fermentation and all that and and having and and uh, working together on these things. You know, the biggest issue is the like legal issue in the United States for us. Um, it's just really hard to do these things. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's generally just been you know how like combining the three fermentations like they're not 
or in mead, you know, and combining them all together. I think mead and, and beer have had a much longer history than like cider and beer and, and cider and wine. Yeah. The only thing I want to just kind of add across that as well is the, um, I think one thing that the beer side and the interaction with the beer world allows Tom is actually some freedoms. As you say, the ability to do stuff insider and like single varieties is a great example. I love the properties of single varieties, what they can be, how they show, how the spectrum is. But that's pretty kind of, and not that this is a negative, but that's quite a kind of course there. If you're working in a really minimal intervention manner, you have the choice of uh, the fruit, you know, the when you pick it, the what you use of it, the container you put it in, the barrel, the tank, etc., and how long you, you let various things occur. But otherwise, it comes out kind of as it goes. When you engage them with the brewing side, you do get to add extra really interesting layers. I think that's what he loves. And I think that hybridization allows makers some more kind of tools for creativity. We have it with a maker I work with down in Sussex who does some uh, kind of natural winemaking with quevery and the like, and been doing the old like quevery fermentations. So you're saying you're giving kind of oxygen contact in a barrel-like way, but from quevery. And then the floor side, we have fruit there that has no tannins, but has a tannic-like texture at the end, seemingly coming from the, the floor, kind of from the fermentation. And then doing that on Pinot Noir skins, because also actually the, the for him, the seasons in terms of when he's got stuff in tank actually cross over really well as well. So there's also... You know, you're, if you're working seasonally, uh, inherently as you are kind of insider or wine, actually when stuff happens, affects it in ways. So, yeah. Uh, we're pretty uh, short on time. So... A, a long five minutes. Got a long five minutes. I just want to touch on the terminology of these hybrids and whether or not... Does this mic actually work? Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, the terminology of hybrids, because Chris, you mentioned how... Uh, for your consumers coming into the into the tap room, that they'll know in the future that okay, they like these certain things. But we've got. I mean, I hope like, they will. Uh, like Braggit and uh, Sizer, and there's a whole bunch of new terms. So it's almost as if for a consumer who knows coming from the beer world, for example, uh, they've learned all there is to know about beer. They're a bit scared of cider or wine, for example, or mead, and there's all this whole new terms to 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 learn. And I'm wondering if the hybrids are actually helpful, or if it's like, no, I need to know all this about cider as well as all this about beer or all this about wine. And is, are we actually scaring people off whenever we were actually trying to make this kind of intermediate way to appreciating cider and your experiences with that? Uh, actually, I think that's a really good question because I, I don't necessarily know if we're, nece if we're making hybrids with the intention of educating the consumer necessarily like at least i i don't know if that's where i come from it you know come come to it from like my intention to educate educate the consumer is by removing variables right so like, like you, you need to you need to take obstacles out of the equation like that's that's what i found has been at least from at least in st pete florida the best way that i can teach people is not by dumbing it down but by individualizing the things that they need to understand, right? If you hand them something that's, that's has maybe complex tannin structure, but also has acidity and it's a little sweet, right? It's, I can, I can detect that. And maybe people that you know, like we can, we can sit down and talk about the, the relevant characteristics of that thing that we're drinking together. But a person that just walking in that says, Oh, you have cider. I love cider. I don't drink beer because I don't like beer. And that's generally what my consumer says. Like they don't, they have no idea what they're talking about. So 
but they want something to drink and they want it to be good. And so the idea is to build trust with your consumer. Whereas they're going to come into my facility. I'm going to spend, I spent the last seven years promising them with like the con- the sort of verbal contract I have is I'm going to make sure that this thing is, we're educated. It's delicious. It's clean. And there are no off flavors or problems with it. And you probably haven't had it before. Those are really the stipulations. And so eventually what you do is you build trust with the consumer where you can start to, like they know they've never had this, but they believe you because they trust your brand and they trust what you do. Uh, and I think, that, I mean, that's the most important thing on the beer and the wine side for us has been to try to make sure that across the board, at least those four elements are intact. But my point is, if I really want them to understand something, if I individualize the characteristics so that we can talk about them, so you can try this cider versus this cider versus this cider rather than having them blended together. Well, if I'm making hybrids, honestly, that's more for me than probably anybody else. Like I'm, I'm interested in the either similarities or the contrast or the, um, uh, the ability to accentuate specific characteristics by using something else or some other element, whether it's technique or process, as he was, as, as Andrew was saying, or if it's actual raw material, right? Or if it's grain, or if it's grape, or if it's cider, or if it's honey. Um, so I think, I think that hybrids can be an educational thing, but I don't necessarily think that I come from it. I, I make it with the intent of educating, you know? So uh, real, I think that's such a cool point because um, uh, just to highlight it a little bit is that like in craft beer, especially in the United States, from my from my experience, they, we're like the brewer is the 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 tr- like you create this trust with the consumer, and you can make something like cider, and they'll be like, I will try this. I don't know anything about ciders. I don't care. I'll try it because I want to get a taste for that. Like I think in the UK, obviously, cider is a lot different because there's so much of it. I mean, my understanding is that there's a lot of it. And um, maybe it's a little harder to be like, why don't you care about Newton Pippin a little bit better? Or why don't you care about like Wixen a little bit more? And, um, and we're over, we can, we can kind of like create a product that's good and then get people excited about it from there. So, and, and maybe the hybridization does a little bit of that. But I agree with you. I don't think, I think it's actually cooler to do 100% and then show people, do, they, do you like acid? Do you like tannin? Do you like your, your, your mouth to feel like a cat? <laughs> Okay, so we've got a talk starting in 10 minutes. So that's right, isn't it? Yeah, so we've got time for one or two questions. So has anyone in the audience got any questions for these three guests? But it's, like, it's maybe like more of a comment. I think you're, you made a point there about how you're not trying to educate the consumer. I'm not trying well, well, no, you, you sort of said that your intention was to like not sort of force a detail on them, I guess, right? Was that what you were trying to say? Um, I think that's really brave, really good in a way, but I think that you are... Educating the, I think this industry is becoming a lot more dumbed down in a way. You hear this like phrase like juice bombs and all that kind of stuff. Okay. What you're doing, I think, is quite brave in the in the sense that you're going, this is an apple. Like you're you're naming it after the apple, sure. and you're actually giving the the consumer a chance to like understand what that means in a simplified way. So it is a simplified thing that you're doing. But if you want to, you can actually go more complex and dive into that. I just wonder, was that a conscious decision or accidental? Yeah, I mean, I think you you just said what I thought I said, which was. That is exactly what I'm trying to do. Yeah, no, I, I, we are trying to, we are trying to individualize the characteristics so that we can educate the consumer on what those flavor contributions are. I think what I meant was, was it accidental or was it a conscious? Oh no, that was definitely conscious. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, sorry. Thank you. Anybody else? Felix has got a point. No, I, um, 
The one thing, um, particularly maybe this is particularly from the, the British perspective, as you kind of highlighted a minute ago, about cider being very prevalent in a certain massive industrial form um, and the education element. And the, one of the massive things I think about most is saying the nature of the kind of ciders that someone like Tom works with, how do you best go about with few resources, everything else, conveying, getting it across to people. And I think, you know, ultimately always with these things, the best form of education is the, the taste side, you know. So I think there's a funny little bridging between what you're both saying there in terms of that being it, you know. Um, yeah, great, if you want to learn loads about something and then taste it afterwards and find out you don't like it, <laughs> go for it. But it tends to be the other way around. I mean, I, I remember on this... Years and years ago, one of my first introductions to craft beer-wise was a Wild Beer Co. thing, and I didn't... It was a sour. I had no idea what I was expecting. I had no idea what to do with it. I do think hybrids have an interesting role in slightly bridging a sort of gap, and I think they've really done that in for the likes of Oliver's in the beer side to saying it's opening the door to a name or a cider maker in that sense, saying they do good stuff. And part of the proof is that these things cross over and they connect and you get that kind of interaction, you know? And I used to get, I used to sell from St. John's Bakery in London, uh, down the Mulby Street kind of market years ago when I started doing this. One of the things I heard most of all was people, I'd give them tasters without telling them what it was most of the time, actually, because it was very effective. Um, and what I'd hear back was, I don't like cider, but I like that. And it's really fascinating. You have a bridge and a difference there. So, you know, yeah, it's not, again, US, uh, like US associations or the ACA now, style guide has like 30 different things on it. And from my view, that's just kind of placating the different makers who all want things represented. That doesn't make it more accessible, you know. I think taste is fundamentally the, the kind of most, like, Educational in the the like critical massing that side. Yeah, I, I would say there's a. I would say this back home. We talked to our staff. Some there is more equity in flavor than anything else we do, right? Like hospitality is extremely important to us, and the high the the equity that you have is the is talking about the flavor. So if you can connect with somebody and what they taste, then you're in. Like you're in. That was your job title. I was trying to remember. You're the commissioner of flavor. That's right. That's his job title. <laughs> we found it. This was all for that, actually. Thank you guys so much for helping us out. And we're and uh, I have shares. I have shares in the equity of flavor. <laughs> have we got one more question? No. Okay. no. Thank you all very much for coming. Uh, great panel, as you. Thanks for tuning in, folks. If you're able to support the content we produce at Pellicle, please consider making a monthly donation via Patreon. You can sign up by visiting patreon.com forward slash Mag. Remember to subscribe, and if you can, please leave us a review in your podcast app of choice, as this will help more people find the show. Until next time, I've been your host, Matthew Curtis, and you've been listening to the Pellicle Podcast. Podcast.